Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm Bridget Keyes, and I'm joined by my co-host, TJ West. A few days ago, the world was notified that Pat Robertson, a longtime televangelist, had died. So we thought this might be a good moment to revisit Murder in the Electric Cathedral, in which Jessica encounters a televangelist and has to figure out if he believes what he's actually selling his audience. This episode of our podcast was originally broadcast last November. We'll return with an all-new episode next week, in which we discuss Angela Lansbury's performance in The Manchurian Candidate. So take this week to watch the movie again if it's been a while since you've seen it. You can stream it for free on Tubi. And we hope you enjoy revisiting Murder in the Electric Cathedral. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's greatest Murder, She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keyes. And I'm TJ West. We are talking today about murder in the electric cathedral. Teach, do you want to give us a summary of this episode? Yes. Um, I actually, before I say that, it was a very remarkably provocative episode. Like as soon as we got the opening shots of like it being in a televangelist setting, I was like, wow, Murder, She Wrote hitting it right out of the park, which brings me... To the actual summary, in which Jessica is visiting a friend of hers who is an elderly woman, has a lot of money, has essentially been bamboozled by said televangelist, and then ends up murdered. So Jessica has to figure out who did it to obviously have justice for her friend, who is one of those rich old ladies that everyone is trying to take advantage of. Yeah, and so ultimately, you know, uh, her stepson, Harvey, and his son, Sam, could inherit millions and finally make their oil business a go by drilling for oil. Or Reverend Willie John Fargo and his electric cathedral could inherit all of her money. Uh, And so the question is, which faction ultimately killed her, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So what did you think of this episode? Oh, I love this episode because I'm fascinated with 1980s prosperity theory, uh, theology and uh, televangelism. And, you know, we'll get, I'm sure we'll get to this in a second, but it starts out very sharply critical of that era. Um, well, it's still an era, <laughs> but specifically of the 80s televangelists. Uh, and then by the end, you know, in true like murder show fashion, it kind of lands softly uh, mm-hmm. He might not actually, our Reverend Willie John might not actually be a horrible person. And he might actually be trying, like, reformed and trying to do some good. And so I think um, we've addressed this with a number of other episodes that the show tends to bring up something that's a hot button issue. Um, and then, like most TV of the time, it kind of lands gently, you know, and avoids taking a strong stance on one side or the other. And obviously, it does that to attract a wide audience, right? You don't want to off put all of your evangelical Christian viewers, but right. And I mean, as I've said, as I have said many times, you know, over the course of, of this podcast, what I really love about Murder She Wrote is that it's such an fascinating and rich and textured like artifact from the 80s. I mean, you and I were of coming of age in the 80s. So obviously, we at least knew of televangelists, like my family's not particularly evangelical, but I was still aware of such people like being on television, like the, the Bakers, obviously being the most notable example. But it's it's just a fascinating way in which Murder, She Wrote is so deeply indicative of its moment. Um, and as you rightly point out, it is critical, which, you know, I literally turned to my partner while we were watching. I was like, my God, Murder, She Wrote's like just coming out strong with this episode. Um, and I just think that's a really interesting thing, especially since, as we've already talked about so extensively, Murder, She Wrote 
is pretty sharp in its way of, you know, addressing 1980s Reaganite America. Well, let's dive into like what specifically about televangelism the episode is commenting on. So we have Reverend Willie John Fargo, who's played by Steve Forrest, and he runs what he calls the Electric Cathedral. It's a TV studio where they film their evangelical program. Uh, And we know he's raked in millions of dollars in donations. He has a very fancy way of living, but he's also like used the money for some other good. Like he built the hospital that's next door that Carrie, our murder victim, ends up at. So it's kind of a mix of both, right? And um, I just, I want us to think about like, who is this episode actually parodying or commenting on? So if you think about like Oral Roberts, I mean, he was from Oklahoma and this is set in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. right? And at one point, Willie John says, ooh, we get enough money from this lady dying. I can start a university in my name, right? He wants the Willie John mm-hmm. University. And that to me sounds exactly like Oral Roberts. But then we also have like Billy Graham, who has like this longstanding TV career. And it should be mentioned also like uh, like ministered to Queen Elizabeth. Right. So you mentioned the Bakers. Um so Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, they actually started out with Pat Robertson, who um, is probably best known for the 700 Club, which only just went off the air in 2021. He was on the air for 50 years uh, and started the Christian Broadcasting Network. And the Bakers actually started through Pat Robertson's network and then launched their own TV show and media company. Um And this is before this episode, but there's already the seeds, like the FCC had investigated them at this point for um, soliciting donations over the air that were being misused. But it wasn't until like 1987 that their empire really came tumbling down. So I think Murder Shield is tapping into this moment where we kind of suspect that these people are up to no good, but we're not really sure. And such is the case with um, Reverend Willie John, right? And then, of course, we could also think about um, Jerry Falwell, who also has a university, Liberty University. And at this time, in 1979, uh, he's founded the Moral Majority, which is like the new Christian right, which is sort of taking over conservative politics. And I think the episode definitely wants us to think about that, too. And what's really interesting about these figures is that they appeal not just to like what we would call evangelicals, uh, you know, more fundamentalist Christians, but they have a very wide appeal. And that's something that, the you know, that what Willie John brings up specifically that, you know, television allows him to have that kind of access to a huge audience that he wouldn't necessarily have had with just a more limited denomination. Like even my grandmother, who was not evangelical by orientation, loved Billy Graham and other, you know, televangelists who had large followings throughout the 1980s. So they had, you know, this broader appeal other than just the sort of smaller segment that we normally associate with the term evangelical. And I mean, there's such an emphasis throughout the episode on Willie John's like spending, like his brother repeatedly kind of reminds him and reprimands him for spending so exorbitantly, like just sort of spreading that largesse everywhere. That's part of the reason that he needs Carrie's money is because he's basically outspending himself, which outspending his donations. Right, which is clearly, as you rightly point out, like an evocation of the bakers and others who were, you know, one step ahead of their creditors. Live in large at the yeah. expense. And there's this great moment where Willie uh, John explains to Jessica where the donations come from. And it's it's horrifying. I mean, he says they come from the little people and I tell them to give till it hurts. And they do. And he names people who are like, you know, sort of the lowest uh, economic classes in society. And so we have this image of like, 
poor, you know, people with no education and minimum wage jobs sending money to this guy who's got like three houses and a private jet, right? It's crazy. But you know what I think is interesting, Tej, is you mentioned his brother. His brother, um, Earl, is played by Frank Bonner, who was uh, Herb on WKRP. So we've nearly completed having the entire WKRP cast as Marishiro guest stars at this point. We're almost there. Earl is actually way more sleazy in the end than Willie John. So Willie John is like totally spending and living lavishly. Um, but it's Earl is the one who's like, is the old lady dead yet? Can we get our money? You know, I mean, he's really gross. And it's Willie John at the end who's like, I gave the money away. And I mean, but I think part of the reason that like what there's an interesting tension there, because I mean, Willie John, you know, and Steve Forrest deserves a lot of credit for like how he has a meme of the televangelist. Like if you've ever watched this particular type of televangelist, they have this kind of thin veneer of exuberance and it feels sincere, but it also feels fake. And it's a very strange dynamic. And it's one that, you know, I've observed critically. And I just I think it's really interesting the way the show so ably captures that particular attitude and demeanor. Well, let's talk a little bit about the murder and what ultimately leads Willie John to this perhaps reform, right? So Carrie McKittrick lives in Oklahoma. And this we, we see Jessica roll up in a cab to this beautiful yellow mansion. And it turns out we learned through inference in their dialogue that Carrie was Jessica's teacher at one point. They haven't physically seen each other in 30 years, but they've been exchanging letters. And Jessica just happened to be in Oklahoma. We don't know why. We're not told. But she decided to drop by and say hi since she was in the area. So <laughs> as one does. This, as one does, right? So all of this teach is like mind-blowing to me that everyone else in this episode knows Carrie infinitely better <laughs> Jessica and has an infinitely more intimate relationship with her. And yet Jessica is like, I'm going to stay until this murder is solved because one of you fuckers did it. <laughs> Lady, get out. You're a stranger. Like I would be like, get out of our lives. I mean, to, to add, you know, regularly on this podcast, we've talked about <laughs> moments when what Jessica does crosses a certain kind of legal line, mm-hmm. you know, because we talked about with the episode where, you know, she's basically conferring with attorneys unrealistically but in this episode she takes it to an even greater level because she literally picks up the hypodermic needle that is you know that has the cyanide in it that has killed carrie puts it in a plastic bag and then gives it to the district attorney hey listen (laughs) you know what i was just really proud of her that she picked it up with a handkerchief because a lot of times she just touches evidence with her bare hands i know but she's grown (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, having watched a lot of Law and Order and SVU, I'm like, this would get thrown out of any court. Yeah. Which obviously I know that Bernie Shearer doesn't really care about like legal verism. Until- no, I think that all the time about her cases, like all of these cases, none of these murderers <laughs> will ever be convicted because of how much interference she's doing in the right. investigation, right? You know, because, and the, well, I mean, the, the show kind of laughs it off, but even the district attorney is like, so you basically tampered with evidence? <laughs> It's like, yeah, because there's no way of tracing the, like, the, what's the word? Um, the path of this, of this needle, but in between the time that it was on the floor, it got into Jessica's hands. You know, now that you mentioned that, though, that's sort of curious because uh, what happens is Carrie's in the hospital. She's had some heart problems and she codes and everybody rushes in to take care of her. Jessica comes in and sees the needle and grabs it off the floor. Nobody else sees it, right? And then they're like, get out. You can't be in here. 
So she takes it with her. Uh, and knowing that, Tej, that no one else saw it, right? But she collected it and she gives it to the DA and she says, I found this and it smells like cyanide. Like she could have totally made that up. Who's to say that she didn't just grab a syringe and make the whole thing up? I mean, who's to say that Jessica isn't really responsible for this, you know, this <laughs> series of hundreds of murders, like the most prolific, you know, I, I jest, of course, but. You're back to the I killed them all meme. Yes. <laughs> Are you in that conspiracy theory? Like, do you think that's really what happened? I don't, I don't, I'm far, I'm not nearly that cynical. I'm far too sincere yeah. to believe that Jessica Fletcher would ever be capable of such a thing. Yeah. I mean, I just adore Jessica Fletcher too much for that, but I think it's funny. It is very funny. Here's a case where like, it probably could have happened. Right. I mean, this isn't, this isn't Eric Poirot who does actually end up killing someone in his last book. But anyway. That is a total digression that is not even related do you want me to do this episode or not? <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that she gives the evidence to the district attorney. And when she did that, I was at first like a little bit bristling. Um, why are you not giving this to the police? Mm. But we learn again, there's a lot going on in this episode that you have to like pay attention to the dialogue to explain. So later in a meeting, he sort of explains the police chief is out sick or something and everybody else is on vacation. And so the district attorney himself is left to investigate the case. There's like no police in town to do it. Which is insane. Like I can't imagine like <laughs> why even in Oklahoma, of course, fair enough. It is Oklahoma and I know they do things differently there. So it's possible that, you know, this might actually be realistic in that sense. Yeah. And it makes for an interesting relationship because um, he is the family attorney in one sense, but he also understands that this town is totally supported by Willie John's money uh, as much as it's supported by Carrie McKittrick's money. And so he kind of has, he's like a servant to two masters in a way. He feels obviously very torn mm -hmm. about how to handle this case. And so we really do need Jessica as the outsider um, because everything in this town is just way too entangled with these two factions and their money. Right, which is itself a really, like, I think that's the episode's most interesting component to, in some ways, is the sort of politics involved in all of this. Not that obviously that Carrie's death is deeply tragic, but it's the, the as you put it, the entanglement that I found most interesting to sort of watch and how we see these characters relate to one another. Mm -hmm. Particularly once Carrie's, like, stepson and step-grandson get involved and like the w the way that they are so greedy and avaricious for her money and mm -hmm. very tra and very transparently and nakedly so like there's no <laughs> ambiguity and in sense in a sense they end up being the bad guys much more than Willie John does exactly at the end. yeah because they actually really don't seem to care about her at all and they are desperate for her money to the point that before she dies she even begs Jessica not to let them change her will and get her her money right which like begs Jessica. Yeah, which, you know, speaks a lot about how the toxic family dynamics that are at work here. Money, I'm telling you, money is no good. Uh, people always end up getting killed and everybody hates everybody. It's just, it's better not to have any, sounds like. Yes, that, that is one lesson a person could take from, from <laughs> this episode, I suppose. <laughs> Things Murder, She Wrote taught me. Let's talk a little bit about how the murder is committed. So Jessica finds the piece of evidence, right? So ultimately, after 42 minutes of investigation, we learn that um, the murder was committed by someone sneaking into Carrie's hospital room and in injecting cyanide into her IV through this syringe, which is used for insulin for a diabetes patient. And it just so happens that Willie John has diabetes. 
But as Jessica figures out, like, why wouldn't they have just used insulin and injected the insulin directly in Carrie? No one would have ever noticed it. No one would have ever suspected it of murder. Why did they leave the syringe? It was planted so that people would think it was a murder. The cyanide was used so it would be obvious she was murdered. And it turns out it was all Willie John's wife setting him up. And so I'm glad you brought up the diabetic thing, because I want to talk about that just briefly before we like talk about the murder itself, because there's a whole segment where Jessica's touring this opulent mansion that Willie John and, and Sister Ruth, which it's weird that he always refers to her Sister Ruth, first of all, so let me just put that on the line. I We're going to talk about that. It's yeah. very weird. Even It gave me very Handmaid's Tale kind it's of... It's so creepy. It's so creepy. His own wife is called Sister Ruth. Well, I mean, remember, our former vice president referred to his wife as mother, so it's... Yeah, well, don't normalize that either. No, I, I'm not... It's equally creepy. I'm not in any way normalizing. <laughs> I'm just saying that it's it's a thing. It's a convention that is, you know, weird and unsettling. Uh, you know what else makes it weird is that she's always wearing these really wide headbands over her really bad wig, and it um, <laughs> it almost it almost looks like a like a more progressive nun covering her hair, you know? Mm-hmm. So the sister roofing, it's like, it's really confusing. It's like, wait, is she his wife or is she a nun? Like what's going on? Right. And there are a lot of, shall we say, outlandish hairdos in this episode, even for the eighties, <laughs> they were distractingly outlandish. Like there's a nurse whose head, I swear, I'm not sure if there was any hair involved. It just seemed like a huge mass of like flaming red something. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was extraordinary. But anyway, <laughs> But anyway, diabetes. diabetes. It was really interesting because, you know, Willie John and Sister Ruth are talking to Jessica about his diabetes. And they frame it as like this affliction. And of course, you know, if you're familiar at all with, as, as you refer to, like Protestant um, prosperity theology, that is very much how they would refer to it. It just was interesting to me that they would talk about diabetes, you know, relatively. It's not like cancer, for example. But it was just, it was striking to me that they use that as the sort of their framework through which he understands his own physical health. Um, and it's, I think, what helps contribute to what I alluded to earlier, which is that kind of shystery, false sincerity that is so well captured by this particular character. I'm not sure I follow what you're saying. You're saying that um, because he has diabetes, he presents that as some sort of vulnerability given to him by the Lord. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, he's a humble folk. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And that's exactly what he, I think, is trying to get, get to get across. That it's his cross to bear is, you know, the, mm-hmm. this, that he's being afflicted by the Lord, but, mm-hmm. but he will soldier on nevertheless, which, you know, which is I sort said, of confusing because he also in the same breath tells Jessica, like, it's a completely manageable disease. Right. As long as you maintain your insulin injections. Right. The Lord yes. has given me this horrible cross to bear that I also manage without very much incident. And I'm not trying to make light of diabetes here. I'm making light of Willie John, right? Right. Well, yeah, exactly. But that's that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about like the fakeness and the artificiality of it. Mm-hmm. Like that's a moment where that becomes most visible, even within the text itself. You know, that conversation happens when they're in the living quarters of Willie John and Sister Ruth in this immense building that houses the electric cathedral and all of their operations. Uh, And Jessica goes on a tour. Sister Sister Ruth gives her a tour of the facilities. And she pretends to be, like, sort of awed by it. I mean, she probably is awed, but, like, in a horrified way. Uh, But she seems to be awed in a spectacular way. And all I could think, Teach, the whole time is, like, she is 100% memorizing all of this so she can write a book exploiting them. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that you're right to to pinpoint like her mingled (laughs) feelings about this, because I think that the feeling that we as audience members are supposed to have is similarly conflicted, you know, in some sense, 
in, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not inspired. Ah, oh, fuck. Amazed. We're you know, we're sort of impressed by their what they've achieved, you know, with their prosperity. But at the same time, horrified because obviously this seems to run counter to what we sort of think of as the duty of Christians to live a humble life. And that, like, your grandma gave them the money to build that. Yes, exactly. So I think that, and I think that is indica- indicative, both of Marty Sherwood's own attitude toward this phenomenon, but also broader American culture, which seems, has always seemed to be conflicted about what to make of these enormously successful religious figures. We still see it in a show, I don't, you probably haven't seen it, called The Righteous Gemstones on HBO, which is about a family very much like Willie John and about their sort of conflicts and stuff like that. So it's, you know, there is a lot within American culture that's deeply ambivalent about, you know, this kind of prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. Even now. We should explain what that means for people who maybe are unfamiliar with the phrase prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. So essentially it's this idea that um, if you have enough faith and if you donate enough, you know, if you do enough good work, then God will reward you with wealth, right? And so conversely, wealth indicates righteousness. Uh, and it was sort of this attitude that was perpetuated by televangelicals. Is that a word? In the 80s. It is not. And since you made fun of me <laughs> for saying... Yes. And since you made fun of me for saying <laughs> man instead of mean, I will mock you now for saying... Well, they're called evangelicals. So it's confusing that they're televangelists. I don't Do you make- follow? Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, it was perpetuated by people like the Bakers in the 80s. Uh, so that's what we mean when we say right. this prosperity, right? So because Willie John is so rich, he must be especially close to God, right? He must have done so many good works, right? And ultimately, you know, we were talking about the murder itself. That's what chokes Sister Ruth to the point that she frames him for murder. I mean, she murders Carrie and leaves the syringe because she's trying to frame him uh, because they're kind of in a loveless marriage. And she says she can't deal with his sanctimonious piety. Right. And she wants out. But as the wife of someone so famous, she can't get out. She can't get divorced. Right. That would ruin everything they stand for. And if she killed him, people would expect her to be a grieving widow for the rest of her life. And I have to say, I was, you know, I was, as I was preparing for a nap this afternoon, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was, I was, <laughs> hard research. I was musing as I do about this episode, as I was thinking about what I would say tonight, and I was like, man, that is a really messed up situation. It's because you know the, Willie John seems genuinely like penitent that he put Sister Ruth in such a position that she felt like she, this was her only out. Mm-hmm. But it's really messed up that she would sacrifice Carrie, basically an innocent bystander, just because she was miserable in her marriage. Like that's when you think about it, like when you really spend a moment reflecting on it, as I was before napping, it's it really dawns on you like how beneath the sort of, you know, faux, the charm and and happiness of murder, there's something genuinely horrifying about this woman taking this action that is just awful. Like, I can't find any other way to put it. Well, it's especially bizarre because there's lots of moments where we hear Earl saying horrible things, right? Like, is she dead yet? We're going to get all our money. And she always looks at him and is like, gross, be quiet. So we think she's actually a sort of reasonably good human being. Mm-hmm. And she's not. She clearly sees Carrie as disposable as Earl does. She just doesn't say it out loud. Right, which, you know, if we're going to push, I don't want to push this interpretation too far, but could be even, you know, a, a further indictment of the sort of hypocrisy inherent in this kind of Protestant theology, mm-hmm. this particular branch of Protestant theology, which is very weird. And mm-hmm. I say that as a former Protestant. 
<laughs> Protestantism is a strange thing. I I was raised Catholic and now I'm an atheist. So this is all like remarkably interesting to me because it's foreign to me. But can we talk a little bit more about the way the episode walks that fine line? Um, like we Willie John won't tell the police where he was during the murder. He like refuses to admit right. it, which makes him look guilty. And then the nurse with the big hair that TJ was talking about says, well, I was with him. So it sounds like they're having an affair. And right. she says, he was ministering to my needs, which is like LMAO, crack me up, like what a weird euphemism for sex, right? right? But then it turns out like, no, she was actually like confessing to him that she's having an affair with a married man and he was actually counseling her. Right. Which, of course, when I was, I mean, I got the murderer right when I was trying to figure out who did it this episode, but I got the motive wrong. Because I assumed that he really was having an affair and that's why Sister Ruth murdered him. He's but been fact, ministering she, to too many people's needs. Right. But it, has, it turns out that Sister Ruth is having an affair, not him, and that, that's the reason that she killed him. <laughs> yeah. So Sister Ruth has also been ministering to people's needs. I'm going to start using that from now on whenever I refer to, like, sexual relationships between consenting adults. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then at the end, you know, so we talked a little bit about it at the end, he did actually get all of Carrie's money right. uh, as she wrote in her will, but he set up a foundation in her name and he tells her stepson and grandson that they're going to be the trustees who administer this. And it's going to be really good for them because although they don't get their oil company funded, they will look like community heroes because they're these benevolent donors giving money and grants to the community now. So it's kind of a win for them for sure. Right. And it makes him look pretty good too. Yeah. Right? He didn't keep the money. Right. But there's a, it just can't quite shake the, the cynicism that the episode has in general toward wealth, which is a, of a piece with murder, murder, general ethos. Like there's still that sense that rich people may do it, but there's always a, element of self-interest involved and that that's kind of sleazy i don't know he says he's his whole thing has made him think of money differently it doesn't seem so important now and he's headed for he says africa asia and south america he's such a colonizer he's so gross but he's in his mind he's gonna go do good you know to these other parts of the world yeah that was my thought i was like wow that's a line that does not read particularly (laughs) well in 2022 (laughs) And, but, you know, Jessica gives him, like, a little a little smile. Like, it's it's not a happy end. It's not one of our, like, ha-ha, JD right. moment freeze frames. But it's it's like, okay, we're going to try to make this yeah. all okay. No, I think that there's – I think you're, you're right to point that out. I think we're supposed to think that she's rethought him a little bit. Like, his actions have made her kind of change her perceptions of him. Right. I guess I was more thinking along the lines of, the, you know, that Carrie's – uh, stepson and grandson, they their self interest is still part of that. Horrifying, and we should note also that um, the grandson is abusive to his wife, and right. his <laughs> father says, "Let me read the exact quote because it is re- uh, so horrifying." I thought it was just two kids blowing off steam. Yes, I. That was I was like, what on earth um, is going on right now? And because, you know, when we first meet, it's Alice, right? That's the st- the mm-hmm. step-grandson's wife in, the, ho- in mm-hmm. the hospital room. She's wearing huge, dark sunglasses. 
Because of course, and then wearing them in the car driving at night. At night, <laughs> it's like so. It's such a TV thing. It's like so obvious when she takes them off, she's gonna have a black eye, right? Right. And I was like, wow, that is horrifying. Um, I mean, and the episode doesn't spend a lot of time, like, sort of examining it. No. Um, but I think it is. That's what's horrifying, right? Yes, exactly. But I mean, I think it is of a piece, though, with just how corrupt the son and the stepson and the step grandson are. Like, I think it's just very much of the episode's general hostility toward their avarice and just their general shittiness as people. <laughs> He's clearly abusive and like that, but that seems very much of a piece with his just general shitty behavior. Like he's, a cl- he, they're monsters. Yeah. Yeah. They're disgusting people. Yeah. They're monsters. They clearly just see everyone who stands in their way as, you know, someone to blow over, like right. physically beat or kill or whatever. Right. They're just horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, human life and human sort of well-being is uh, is disposable. But this is them. what I'm saying. This is why the episode is so compelling because mm-hmm. in the end, Willie John ends up being more humane, uh, and these people who aren't swindling people for their money actually are <laughs> and actually are awful. So it's like I think the episode really wants us to wants to play with our prejudgment, right? Yeah. No, I think that's a really I think that's a very good way of putting it. Now, if I had one gripe, though, it would be that um, we don't get enough TV preaching scenes. We only get one brief one at the beginning of the episode. And that it's is true. called Murder at the Electric Cathedral. I want to see more televangelism. That is true. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more sense of who Willie John is as a, as a sermonizer. Yeah, right? Um, we mentioned who played Willie John, but we didn't mention any of the other guest stars. We did not. Do you want to... Elaborate. You're usually well, our- sure. I mean, we said Frank Bonner plays um, Earl, and then we have Judy Jason plays Sister Ruth. She's probably best known for being on Two Sir with Love, the movie with Sydney Poitier. Sydney Poitier, 1967. Uh, I was obsessed with that movie when I was a kid. And then we have Richard Hurd plays the stepson. Um, I don't know what people would have known him for at this point, Teach, Do you? Well, I mean, uh, aside from other things, he very shortly after this, he would have been in The Golden Girls as Rose's impotent boyfriend, Ernie. Right. And I, I know him best from Star Trek Voyager, where he plays uh, Tom Paris's mean dad. He also, more recently, was in Get Out as the sort of originator of the whole scheme. Oh, no. He plays the, the old grandfather. A horrible man. He has a very, I mean, he has a, he has a sort of demeanor that is both like avuncular, but also faintly cruel. There's always a faint yeah. note of cruelty to him, which, you know, that takes skill to capture both of those things at once. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think overall of this one? Um, is this one to put in the keep, keep and rewatch file for you? I think so. Um, like I said, I, I really liked how it kind of engaged. I love the episodes where it engages with. The, 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 blah, 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 blah. Let me try that again. Yes, I think it is. I, it's one of those ones where it engages with the moment, and I really love those Murder She Wrote episodes um, as little t- little time capsules that tick a number of boxes. I like it as a Murder She Wrote episode, and I like it as an artifact from the eighties. So, yeah, I would say it's absolutely in my keep pile. I would also add that I think it's incredibly resonant today. Um, we still have the same kind of um, evangelical megachurch pastors on television, you know, whose uh, goodness may be a question mark at times, right? So it, it also feels incredibly relevant to today. Yep, absolutely. And those are yeah. the best kind of murder she episodes. Yeah. Between those and the ca- the cozy Cabot Cove, those are my favorites, so. 
Well, I think that'll do it for this week's episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keith. And I'm TJ West. We'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 